Hello and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. Quite often it's perceived that a player returns from an international tournament and doesn't quite look the same. This was particularly banded about after the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar, when many players returned to their clubs after having sensational tournaments and didn't quite look up to scratch. Messi is playing poorly, Benzema doesn't look right, Enzo Fernandez doesn't look like he's everything the pundits made him out to be. These are just a few of the lines we heard in recent months following the Winter World Cup from pundits criticising a player's performance for their clubs. But is there actually any truth to these claims? Or are they yet another cliched figment of the imagination to explain an inexplicable drop in form? This podcast tries to answer this very question. The episode will be based on an article written by the ever-wonderful Scott Martin, which was published last week in the latest TFA magazine, so I highly advise you go and check it out for yourself to see the amazing data visits that Scott created to analyse the theory. The piece is titled, Fact or Fiction? The Truth Around International Tournament-Induced Slumps. If you are already a TFA member, then you are able to download this 159-page masterpiece free of charge. If not, all it will cost you is either €5.99 monthly membership, where you get this magazine, our monthly TFA Scouted magazine, all our daily articles, and over 8,000 articles, and 80-plus previous magazines from the archives. Or a €59.99 annual membership, where you get all that, but save yourself the cost of two months. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and I hope you all enjoy the following episode. Before we begin, though, please make sure to rate the podcast. Five stars, hopefully. It's greatly appreciated. We've been growing exponentially at the moment, and we're incredibly grateful for your continued support. So let's try and keep that going as we bring you our very best audio content. So now, without further ado, let's get into the episode by speaking to the man himself who wrote the incredible piece for the magazine, Scott Martin. Scott, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. How have you been? I'm doing very well. So, yeah, springtime in uh, North Carolina and the USA. So, everything's green here, including my navy blue car. Oh, nice. (laughs) Yeah. Pollen gave me a totally new look. (laughs) Well, I, it's springtime here, obviously, in in Dublin, Ireland as well. But I'd imagine my spring is very different to your spring. It was absolutely beautiful out yesterday. And by the time I get out of the cinema and I went to see that film air about, Michael Jordan and the Air Jordans, pretty good film. By the time I got out, it was absolutely freezing. Ireland is an awfully cold country. And actually, Brian, who's obviously a friend of the podcast, he's always on doing the TFA Scouted podcast. He had this discussion with me off air a few weeks ago about uh, winter in Venezuela, where he lives. And he told me that 15 degrees is cold. What to, to 15 degrees Celsius is not bad. Yeah. 15 degrees to me is like, take my top off outside weather it's that warm i couldn't believe he said that that was cold cold well, to yeah. me is sub sub temperature i guess to give you a sense of north carolina um yesterday it was about i think 26 tomorrow so you know good That's saturday 26 degrees celsius 26 oh my and then God, no way we're gonna drop down to six and then a few days later, we'll be back in the uh, low to mid twenties. So, <laughs> so it's yeah, that's incredible. Little, little are you, are you used to that weather? That, that, that are you used to twenty degree weather? I would die. I would melt physically. I can't. I couldn't do that. Yeah, I, I don't mind it. Um, initially, I'm from California, so the thing I love about uh, the state is it's very steady. Uh, I could tell you what the weather is in my hometown 
today, like right now, um, just doesn't change. So um, North Carolina is it's a little bit more chaotic. You know, it'll climb and then uh, we'll have another uh, storm come in and it'll fall for three days. And then we'll be back up to, uh, you know, 80 degrees here. So, you know, 25. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, it's... I've adapted, so it's <laughs> definitely more humid than I'm. I was used to, but uh, yeah, once once you have that adjustment period, it feels just fine. So I, I've reached a point where I prefer the uh, you know the heat, and mm-hmm. I appreciate the fact that our our winters are pretty mild. Um, you know, maybe ten degrees is pretty cold for us. So you know, we didn't have snow all year. Uh, last year we had it three times. Third was really just a dusting, but yeah. I prefer a warmer climate. Don't know if I can uh, move too far north. I'm the exact opposite. I do not like a warm climate. And and the worst thing is because everyone, as soon as it's hot, everyone puts shorts on. And 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 I have such hairy legs. No one wants to see that. So I'm just I just don't wear them. And and I melt physically. <laughs> anyway, enough enough about that. Um, I'll move on and ask you about the piece you wrote, Scott. I've read. I told you off air. I read this piece twice now. Once for just. Pleasure, I suppose. It was a great piece. And then once for research when doing the the kind of the, the topics I want to speak on the podcast. What was the reason behind this idea? You come up with some amazing ideas, like kind of what's the what was the reason or what was the, the idea behind writing this piece? All right. So this is actually right, sit back. This is this is way, <laughs> way back. Um this started with a grudge against Real Madrid, July twenty sixth, two thousand fourteen. I bought tickets to see Real Madrid play Inter Milan in Berkeley, California for the International Champions League Cup. Excited to see the GOAT, Cristiano Ronaldo, but it was after a World Cup. He wasn't there. Oh, really? Was, yeah, he wasn't there. So I got to see Pepe, you know, one of my all-time favorites. <laughs> got to see Gareth Bale, a uh, young guy named Isco. Uh, Mauro Icardi was still on Inter Milan at that time. Wow. So I got to see some great players. The guy I really wanted to see wasn't there. <laughs> uh, it got me wondering how how much of a recovery period do they need after these international tournaments? Mm. Um, can we expect any kind of a, a dip in performance from players, from clubs? Uh, how does it all fit together? And, you know, it really wasn't until recently um, thinking about this impact of the, you know, th- this past World Cup in Qatar that. Mm really hit me that I, I should look at the data. Um, so sat down, created my six or seven spreadsheets, um, you know, all, all the, the tabs necessary for it and crunched some numbers. So, you know, this, this was, uh, the fulfillment of, a a long time grudge. Did you, did you, Christian, Christian <laughs> actually, I remember that tournament. I believe Manchester United played Real Madrid. That's that, that very tournament as well. And Ashley Young scored. Uh, Ashley Young scored against Real Madrid. But what a what a time to be alive! Uh, yeah, I think that was at the uh, the Big House in Michigan. Yeah, it was. A, it was hundred and it was a record. People in the stands. Obscene! Yeah. I remember watching that. It was an unbelievable spectacle. That was a good tournament actually. United played Liverpool. I think Inter Milan played United. Real Madrid United. Real Madrid Inter. It was a great tournament. I love that. Um, first. I re- the first I remember of a massive tournament in America during preseason, I thought it was pretty cool. But yeah, you're right. It was just after the World Cup, and there was a lot of players missing. Like I think, I think Manchester United played Reese James, not not 
Chelsea's Reese James. It was a, it was like Wigan Athletics now, Reese James. I don't know where he is now. I think he's at Wigan. Um, so it was a bizarre time to be alive. Did you have preconceptions of what you believe the answer was going into this piece? Like, did you think that in your head, like, yeah, I think it does cause slumps? Or was there, did you just go in with a blank, a blank mind, a blank kind of bias? I, I actually did have that preconceived notion that international tournaments, because of the, the lack of time off for the players, um, missing preseason, I figured it would have a negative impact on player and club performances. And granted, this article focused strictly on the, the club side of things. Um, you know, I looked into to player that that's just a whole another animal right there. Um, yeah. It's an article of itself, but I did expect to see some slumps from the, the top teams coming out of the gates. So that was the, the initial thought, but it's definitely not what I discovered. Um, you know, I will say there is, there's a very big difference between an international tournament held during the summer um, versus you know this this previous one in November and December, uh, and that's definitely something we'll we'll address. But mm. in general, for your standard international tournament um, played in the summer, I was expecting a big uh, or a slow start out of the gates, and, and that just didn't seem to be the case. Yeah, yeah. You you dissected the tournament into kind of you dissected the piece into like three seasons if that makes sense so you took a look at the 2014-15 season the 2018-19 and the 2021-22 season because they all came after major tournaments especially uh, 2021 which was when we had the Euros and the Cup of America in the one summer which was a very hectic time at TFA if you remember because we had the joint magazine going out um, because that was a lot of, of writing and editing to do as well I remember at the time but was there before we kind of break down each season and maybe I'll look at the or well, I will look at the, the Qatar World Cup too. Was there one of those seasons where it 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 stood out the most? And what I'm trying to get at is is there was there anything to do with location involved? Like so say Qatar or, or Brazil where it's more humid than Russia? Because for me there was there was less of an impact reading the article, there was less of an impact from the 2018-19 season, which was in Russia, which wasn't that bad during the summer compared to Brazil and Qatar. I hope I've made sense of the question there. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. It's an angle I really didn't consider mm. for the... Uh, for well, the what's, your, what's your opinion on it then? Like, uh, looking at the data, because as I said, the 2018-19 season, the big teams, apart from Manchester United, who were just poor that season anyway, they kind of, the big teams all took off. Liverpool City, they all took off Chelsea as well. Whereas in 2014, a lot of teams started quite slowly. Yeah, it, I think, you know, one of the trends I picked out, it's really not related to the location, but in general in the Premier League, any given year, it seems like four out of the six big biggest clubs will start really well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other two, whoever that may be, um, they're they're going to have a little bit of a a slow start. And it's, always, it's always Manchester United. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> oftentimes in recent <laughs> yeah. history, but that's where uh, you know. Sorry to throw you under the bus, but Tottenham, a lot of slow starts. Yeah. Um, Arsenal has had their fair share of slow starts too, mm -hmm. and you know, it, 
I don't know. One of the in- interesting discoveries was that goals per game tended to to be pretty steady, um, and, and there you know there was that correlation to points per game. But what what you really saw um, as a distinguishing characteristic of a fast start versus slow start was how well the team gelled defensively. So you know of those six teams, four of them tended to have you know, top marks in goals allowed per ninety minutes to start the season. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, first two months they were phenomenal, and, and then interestingly enough, oftentimes they they saw a decrease in their performances uh, in that specific metric over the course of the season. And I'm looking at uh, 2014 and 15 right now. And um, strangely enough, I, I mean, I think it was, uh, you know, let's see here. I think it's Manchester City. It started really well defensively and then, you know, gradually started conceding more and more goals mm-hmm. per game. So it, to me, it's, you know, I, I don't know how much the, the weather impacted it. Um, I think Brazil would definitely uh, make sense. It would have more of a natural toll, especially if, teams were playing in the more humid regions of the country but you know ultimately um you know if we were to break it down just to the tactics of the uh of each of these teams you know the teams that started well defensively they they tended to collect points Mm -hmm. one of my one thing i noticed from the piece is that when you look at the teams defensively there was and you actually reference it in the piece there's a clear correlation between how strong their defense is and how well they finish in the league. I think that that could have been a whole piece in itself. So you were, I think it was on one occasion, I can't remember which season it was. It might have been the 20, yeah, it was the 2021 22 season. Arsenal and Spurs had the fifth, the fourth and fifth best defenses in the league. And they finished fourth and fifth. And it just perfectly correlated the same with you've Manchester City and Liverpool, top two defensive league. They were top two. There was no crazy outlier in that regard. I think probably the biggest outlier you'll get in a long time was probably Leeds when they first got promoted to the Premier League where they were conceding a bucket load of goals but they finished top 10. I think that it was a, it was just a really good observation because as I said you can make a whole different piece over where defensively a team's position is correlated to how strong the defence is which, which makes sense but you would think there would be some kind of fluctuation. Generally it was pretty like pretty well ordered in that respect so like best defense forced a second you know and then worst defense of Norwich or something 20th easily you know so I quite liked it um it was it was a good part of the piece well and one of the really interesting finds there specifically with Tottenham and Arsenal is that they started really poorly in terms mm-hmm. of goals per 90 minutes um so it really was their defensive work that was carrying them through it, it, that's that's the only reason they they claim points and and managed to you know keep themselves competitive early in the season. Um, they were struggling for goals and, and really we're talking anywhere from twelfth to or tenth to fifteenth in terms mm-hmm. of their goals per ninety rating for you know for the first few months. So the goal the goals will take time. So I think especially um, you know this is another idea I'm trying to flush out whether it's the the more tactically rigid teams that tend to start well versus mm. the, the more tactically adaptable. Um, but you definitely see there that it does take a little bit of time to find your rhythm in terms of uh, just 
the way your team understands each other in the attacking phases uh, and, and just finishing off your attacking moves. But defensively, if you know how to impose yourself on the game in uh, you know, in terms of your defensive tactics, you're pretty well set to at least give yourself a chance at a point. Mm-hmm. You know, if not three, you know, you know, the thing is, you can't lose if you don't concede. Yeah. So, uh, at the very least, you know, I, I think if teams come in with um, very strong defensive tactics, you know, there's a good understanding of how they want to defend, and an understanding of the players to to make sure that they're sticking to the task. You've at least got a chance of of putting in some good early season results and maybe stealing some points. Mm-hmm. I think one of probably the most interesting part for me and the best part of the piece, in my opinion, of course, is the, the Qatar world cup. When you break down, you have a whole section, I believe it's right after, right after the introduction, you discuss all the, the, the top five, the top six leagues. It was league of Portugal was included too, right? Yeah. And one of the reasons I included um, the league of Portugal is because they they do have a um, heavy influx of international players, mm-hmm. so um, you know they have significant representation from South America and Africa, and you know a decent number of those players they they made it to the World Cup. Yeah. So I wanted to include them as well just because of the diversity of the league. So I and I think ultimately there were some nice insights that they added to the equation. Yeah, and when looking at the data, I believe Bayern Munich were the the most represented team at the World Cup with was it was it 18, 19, 19, I believe. 18. Yeah, so I think it was 18 or 19. Yep. 19, yeah. And they they were not by some way, obviously it was still marginal, but they were a couple of players ahead of was it Manchester City, I believe, was second or was it Yeah, Manchester City had fifteen and then at thirteen you get the tie for three or third place with uh Chelsea, Barcelona and Manchester United. Yeah. I was surprised by how high Fulham ranked in that list because they were Fulham, are, but they're behind the the Barcelona, Manchester City, Manchester United. But they were still, they still rank pretty near Arsenal, I believe, in that in that graph, if I remember. Yeah, you know they're they had seven players in the tournament and really right between Porto and Liverpool. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, good company. Yeah, and obviously then the part that I loved reading was was looking at the graph when it looked at points before the World Cup and then points after the World Cup. For me, there was a clear... Well, I don't know. I can't say I can't say it was a clear correlation because there wasn't, but there was, there was a lot of teams in the post-World Cup that dropped points. And the main one for me has been... Well, Bayern Munich dropped a lot of points, for one. And it led ultimately to Julian Nagelsmann getting the sack. Bayern Munich... Bayern Munich were the most represented team at the World Cup and they ended up dropping a lot of points whereas Borussia Dortmund who were still represented at the World Cup but it was I, I believe it was less than double or less sorry it was it was either half or less than half of Bayern Munich if I'm not mistaken um Borussia Dortmund ended up taking the the spot until Julian Nagelsmann was sacked were you surprised by how many teams gained fewer points per game because yes, there was some oh, big, definitely. there was some big teams in there, like mostly like Barcelona, Real Madrid, of course, uh, 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 Bayern Munich as well. You would, you would, was it, was it Manchester City as well? One, there was a couple of of English teams. Yeah, I think City was there as yeah. well. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, and AC Milan were a big one. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you look at that list, it, I stopped at the top twenty-five. Yeah. So you know, whichever teams were 
were top 25 in points per game prior to the World Cup. That's the, the list in that graphic. And of those 25 teams, 20 dropped off. I mean, that's that's staggering. I, I figured there would be some kind of an impact from a midseason World Cup, but never expected that that type of drop. Mm-hmm. So that that was one of the shocking statistics. And, you know, look across the big leagues. You know, Bayern Munich fall off. Nagelsmann gets the sack. Uh, PSG, they were another one. They they fell off significantly. Now we have a race in Ligue yeah. and And now they're out of the Champions League. Mm-hmm. So uh, Real Madrid dropped a lot of points that they really shouldn't have uh shouldn't have and la liga went from a good you know a decent race prior to the world cup to now barcelona running away with it yeah. uh, and to barcelona's credit you know they they've had a slight drop in points per game but for the most part they they've managed to keep the pace reasonably well yeah well chelsea aren't on the list i don't think because they weren't in that they weren't in the ranking but i can only imagine like how many I mean they were they were still picking up points before the World Cup because I they went on like a nine game unbeaten run on the Grand Power. I can't imagine the difference with Chelsea. You you reference Chelsea in that section, I believe, as well, but I don't think they're on the graph. Yeah, they they did not make that all off to uh pull the the main image up. So okay. I, I've got an image with every single team mm-hmm. from the uh the top six leagues. I can only imagine how bad Chelsea ranked on it. I mean, it's probably best that you didn't put it in the piece. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, it's we're talking about data that's a, a month old at this point. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if we factor in the most recent games, <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness, I, I don't know if the uh, the graph can handle that kind of a drop. <laughs> They've literally only picked up one point in the last well, six. Well, the last two games was one point. Crazy. Um, let's talk about the the. I actually thought about what words I could use here. The teams that are in the bottom category. Because I wrote down lesser teams and that's really poor for me. And I think it's quite it's quite offensive because a lot of teams struggle with, with financial and things like that compared to a Man City or a Bayern. Let's talk about the teams that are in the bottom of the category. What takeaways did you get when you when you looked at the data and you put the, the visuals the visuals together for that? You know, when you look at it across the board, they tended to perform better after the world yeah. cup so you know 16 increased their their mm-hmm. points per game after the world cup eight eight held pretty steady uh you know maybe a slight increase or decrease but overall i would say close enough where it's it's steady and then you know you do get the the one decline with angers and legon um, they also lost their best player, who was uh, Azadine Unahi, who was uh, who was unbelievable at the World Cup in Morocco. And they lost him then because of that. He's gone to Marseille, and then bang, they're losing even more points. Yep. And you know, it's there are so many theories you could uh, piece together here. So one could just be the rest. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe with these teams, there you, know, you have less rotation because you have fewer players who can make an impact in the first uh, first team. So maybe that's a factor. Um, I think the second could also just be the psychological side of it. You know, think of it, if you're if you're just getting hammered every single game. Look at some of these teams. I mean, Passos de Ferreira in Portugal, they were, I mean, they were below um, zero point two points per game prior to the the World Cup. I mean, that's that's just a mental beatdown week yeah. in week out. 
Um, Elche, same thing, although, you know, they continue to struggle. Um, Gil Vicente right. got a, have I pronounced that right? Gil, Gil Vicente, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, just uh, picked up a big draw against Sporting. Yeah. Yeah, and you know they're really the but big they, gainers. I was going to say they they had they gained a lot of points per game after in the post World Cup that really benefited them. Yeah, and so that, that's where I think on the psychological side you do see the halt of negative momentum. Mm-hmm. So you know, just psychologically, you get a little bit of a break. Um, you know, I, I would assume most of these players, you know, they they got to spend a little more time with family, uh, maybe take a, a quick vacation before coming back for. Uh, what was basically a second preseason. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you do look at the teams that rated in the bottom uh, 25 of points per game going into the World Cup, they largely benefited from this this uh, pause in their season. Mm-hmm. So um, definitely an interesting correlation in, in you know what you see a lot of the the top teams in the category sinks you know drop offs uh some of them significant and you know with the the teams at the bottom you know there's there's that little bit of a of progression that you know they need to to save their season and for a lot of these teams get out of the relegation zone yeah i think it's important to say as well that for anyone who reads the piece you can probably you can make your own mind up using the data scott just presents the data you make your own mind up but while there's I don't like kind of speculating and saying, okay, I've looked at the data and this is my opinion. There is, uh, I'm afraid, to, uh, I'm, I'm going to be careful what I say here, but there is a kind of a correlation, especially this season, because after the World Cup, the teams who had the most players at the World Cup dropped points, some significantly. I believe, was it, there was a team, I know AC Milan was one, was it Was it Porto? Or there was a, I'm pretty sure there was a Portuguese team that dropped off massively. I can't quite remember. Yeah, it is Porto. Yeah, Porto dropped off massively. There's, you know, there's teams like that that dropped off significantly. And then you have teams at the bottom who didn't have players really at the World Cup and they saw a nice increase. You look at Everton now, and obviously the date is a couple of weeks old, but uh, it would even be probably more beneficial to Everton now because they picked up even more points since the the, the article was, was released for, or published, put in for submission, sorry. Yeah, and... I think for for a lot of these teams that are are trying to stave off relegation, um, this that the World Cup came at a great time for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think when you look at big picture, there wasn't a whole lot of form for them to you know preserve. So these top teams, the teams that were um, carving opponents apart, you know, that time was theirs to lose. Um, so they lost that fluidity. They lost that um, that connection just from being on the training grounds. They lost that positive momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, ultimately they put a few more miles on the legs. And, um, you know, I had that awkward period where you finish the World Cup, you finish, you know, that, that physically taxing period of the season. And then you kind of get a, a short break and then you're kind of back in a preseason and then thrown right into the middle of you know, mm-hmm. a, a title fight. Um, <laughs> the World Cup just, it, it threw everything off this year. So, and you can definitely see it with the numbers from those, um, you know, top 25 in points per game and the bottom 25 in points per game. Yeah. So this is what I wanted to kind of get to know. So 
in my opinion, anyway, I can see that the data somewhat correlates after the World Cup because, or somewhat kind of, you you know, put two and two together, you get four. Like after the World Cup, big teams drop points. The the teams down the bottom pick up points because they have less players at the World Cup. Was that the case with 2021, 2018 and 2014 as well? Or was because they were summer tournaments, whereas this was mid-season? Do you think that it was just this time it was more so the case that this is a mid-season World Cup at such a weird time because we haven't had this ever before. It's, I'm just asking your opinion, really, because I know that it'd be difficult to get data for it because it's just so broad of a question. But Well, it's broad. Yeah, the topic is is a massive one. The mm-hmm. the amount of time I put into the uh, you know that first section, yeah. I knew I couldn't replicate that with the the last two. So that's, that's where you do see uh, the focus just on the Premier League. Mm-hmm. So uh, well, it makes sense to... because there's so many players from the Premier League at the World Cup. So it made sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that that really was the the initiative. Um so in I figured at least with the Premier League, you have six teams. Um maybe this is wrong. Six teams that should be in contention for a title. And maybe that's too much credit to a couple of them. But... <laughs> But you know you do have a little more comp- competition, and you know at the very least the the spots for the top four, the competition there, that's that's really where it gets pretty hot and heavy in the mm-hmm. the EPL. You know in La Liga, I I can say for a fact that Real Madrid and Barcelona are going to finish in the top four. Um, Atletico Madrid pretty much going to be there, so it's really just that fourth spot that's that's up for grabs year in year out. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Premier League gave a, a really nice sample. And, you know, I think if I if I had to make a claim based off the, uh, the you know, the data after the uh, Euro 2020, which happened in 21, and Copa America 21, it's, it's that four of the six teams are going to start well and and well um they're, they're probably going to start in the top four they're probably going to end in the top four so you might see you know those other two teams uh who start a little bit slower maybe make up some ground and push for a top four spot later in the season but definitely in the premier league the way you start it, it seems um to correlate to how you're going to finish at, at least if you're in those you know that that big six category yeah so um you have to give yourself a chance to um, kind of be in the running from the start. So, and ultimately, you know, interestingly enough, you do see that of those top four teams that start well, some of them start really well and they're playing their best football of the season in September and October. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it's definitely a bizarre situation. I, I wasn't expecting that level of performance um, but yeah, it's, you're, you're going to typically see four teams start. Well, um, you're, you'll have some variance, you know, at some point in the year, each team will, will go through a rough spell where they they'll drop points. Um, but yeah, you know, you, you look at, I think it's Manchester United from 21, 22. Um, you know, they, they st- oh, we all remember that season. Yeah. They, I, well, you especially, 
<laughs> but yeah, they started brilliantly. You know, they they played their best football at the beginning of the year, and and yeah. then it was just a, a gradual yeah. decline. Top of the league by the end of September when they beat West Ham, and then just it just October November it kind of. I think it was about October November was a disaster. Yep. Yeah. And you know, worst month of the year, February. Interestingly enough. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I think when you look at the. You know, the month-by-month breakdown of each of these clubs. Um, top four is usually pretty steady from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you might see uh, one club drop out of that top four and another sneak in near the end. Um, but top four te- seems to be pretty steady from start to finish. And, um, you know, each club is, is going to go through... Um, a high and a low in the season and you know just there is a lot of variance in when that slump is going to happen so you can't say definitively that it's you know they're going to start out of the gates slowly or or that they're going to start well you know it, it is <laughs> it does seem very random yeah and it's interesting because you reference it in the piece a couple of times but it always seems to kind of correct itself and the best examples of that were for me the the, the COVID seasons especially the 2020-21 season because the start of the Premier League was bizarre. There's just there was like I think Southampton were top of the league after like a month. It was crazy, and then by the end of the season, it's corrected itself. You've Manchester City. You had at one point Liverpool were again like they are now mid table, but then at the end of the season with Man City, uh, United, Liverpool, and it all kind of corrected itself. Then whereas people get very giddy, don't they? It's like the start of the season that Hampton and Villa are the top two. And everyone's going, oh my God, it's going to be a Leicester title winning season and then eventually correct itself. So as you said, in the the maybe the post-World Cup seasons, at the start, perhaps, things are a little ropey, but they'll correct themselves eventually. The difference is kind of with 2022 was that it wasn't the start. It wasn't like we had a summer World Cup and then, okay, a few teams started poorly, but they've loads of time. It's like, if you struggle in the, the post-World Cup period, from January, February, like that season's ending pretty soon. Like you saw Liverpool were just, especially after the World Cup, have had a horrendous run of form. And the more time goes on now, there's what, five, six weeks left in the season. You say to yourself, okay, there's, <laughs> there's no time to correct this now and Chelsea as well. So it, it is interesting. Um, Just before we move on from Qatar, though, I want to, I want to ask you about, you, you put a tweet out, I think it was in the summer. And you said something like, it would be interesting to see, and I actually, I loved the tweet at the time because it was it was a, it was a great point. You'd be interested to see whether the fact that it's a mid-season World Cup would the, the tempo of matches be higher than there is in the summer. Because during the summer, the season ends, and then you have a couple of weeks of a break, and it's kind of, oh, and then the World Cup starts or the Euros and, or the Cup of America, and everything's kind of lethargic, whereas this time it was season ends, five days in you've your first world cup match were you did you get to see a higher tempo this time did it did it did it satisfy you what were your thoughts on that you're talking specifically from the world cup the, the world cup 2022 okay. yeah in you know i i think looking at this world cup just how many how many zero zero draws do we have at halftime it's bizarre <laughs> i mean from standpoint of attacking fluidity it didn't look like many of the players were in mid-season form which mm-hmm. i don't know it was strange um so i think to me the 
you know, the tempo of the games was was fine. I couldn't tell you if there was any significant difference from previous tournaments. But I don't know, maybe the standout feature is that they had less time to prepare. So, you know, typically these teams, they're in camp, what, three weeks before the tournament? Mm-hmm. You know, they play two, three friendlies. And then, you know, the hope is that they've they've had those three weeks to gel and they, they can put together some kind of a, a performance. Um, this this World Cup, tempo aside, it, it did seem to lack some attacking fluidity. Um, I think a lot of the teams went very pragmatic as well. So maybe this is the uh, the functionalism revolution here. So that's for you, Kyle. <laughs> Shout out there. He's going to love but, that. Yep. I, but the other aspect is, did they have enough time to prepare? Mm-hmm. I don't think they did. So, um, you know, tempo, I, I'm not sure. Um, but in terms of the uh, the caliber of, of play, I don't think it was as fluid as we're, we're typically accustomed to. And, uh, you know, I, I do think teams relied on indiv- moments of individual brilliance mm-hmm. more so in this tournament than, than previously. So, and granted, I don't have any data to support that. This, <laughs> this is just me giving my opinion. So make of it what you will. Yeah. But, uh, the, I don't know, just the, the zero, zero score lines, just, I don't know, tip me off something, something which just didn't feel right. I tend to agree because there's a lot of revisionism about the World Cup because there were some insane matches involving Argentina solely. And okay, that's well and good, but there was also 31 other teams in the competition. And, and you know, for me, there was a lot of games where, and I watched all of them because I was just sitting at home on my couch working while watching the World Cup. And I, I yeah, I am sad, I understand, but I watched them and some of them were dull, so dull. Like there were some standout games, obviously the 7-0 Spain, incredible Spain and Jeremy was a good game, and then everything else involved, involving Argentina. But there was a lot of just nonsense in between that. A lot of, you know, Canada versus Morocco. No, no, no disrespect to either country, obviously. It's just it's just not a game that excited me. Or that's probably a bad example. That was a high, that was a was that a high scoring game, but it was 3-1 or something. I can't remember. It doesn't matter my, my, oh, my memory. It's at least two pragmatic teams. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of revisionism. So yeah, I think I, I would tend to agree with your points, May, that there was a lot of, I, I was a little disappointed because I thought when I remembered back in your tweet, I remember thinking, I thought because it was mid-season and everybody would be more match fit, we would get hell for letter football. And it, it, it maybe towards the end of the tournament, we did. I feel kind of the group stage was just a typical group stage. So I didn't really, that didn't really quench my thirst. Um, Scott, in terms of the, the, the metrics, you used a couple of different metrics throughout the piece, was, you know, which suffered the most, I suppose, is what I want to ask you, in the post-international tournament world? Was it like goals per 90, like straight away? Was it, the team struggle to score? Did they struggle to defend, did you find, mostly? And maybe not just the elite teams, I'm kind of talking a general sweep of the Premier League anyway. You know, interestingly, I think if you look at each of those goals per 90 minutes graphs, you'll, you'll get some variance, but I mean, you've got some teams that are almost on a straight line throughout the mm-hmm. season. Um, I'm looking at the 2018, 19 season right now, uh, goals per 90 minutes. Brighton has almost no variance at all. <laughs> it's almost a straight line across the board. So, um, 
know, same thing with uh, Huddersfield, which, you know, point, uh, 0 0.4 to 0 0.55, you know, not great. But, you know, I, I think the caliber of the players, um, the fluidity, that's, that's something that you'll tend to see pretty much from the get-go. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, looking at a couple of other teams, you know, we definitely saw some, some, I guess, I don't know, I guess the best way to describe it, there were some roller coaster performances, but we're talking maybe like 0 0.2, 0 0.3 increase. And then at some point you'll see 0 0.2, 0 0.3 below the average for the season. So, but for the most part, there wasn't nearly the amount of variance in goals per 90 minutes, um, you know, on that monthly basis mm -hmm. that, you know, that I think you would expect. Um, so it, it really was the goals, um, per 90 that, uh, that were conceded that, that you started to see a lot of variance. So that, that to me from this piece, that, that was, um, the big takeaway, just, Whatever you score an attack, great. Um, but it, it's typically more the goals you allow per game that's mm -hmm. that's going to be predictive of success. And and this is where, like, separately, you know, apart from the article, I had the interest. Look at Real Madrid and Barcelona. Just look at alternating seasons, how they performed week in, week out. And um, you know, going back to twenty fifteen, sixteen, all the way to nineteen twenty. Um, Barcelona, Barcelona's numbers in uh, in terms of their goals per game, fairly steady. Um, you know, it seemed like every two years they there was kind of a new standard. Mm -hmm. um, but it was the goals allowed per ninety minutes that dictated whether they were going to win the title or not. So you know, as as free scoring as those Barcelona teams were, if if they could keep those, you know, the the goals allowed per game below one point three uh, for the first couple of months. They typically won the league. Mm -hmm. If they, you know, we had two years, they conceded 10 goals in the first seven games. Real Madrid won those two seasons. So um, with Real Madrid, it, you know, for the most part, very steady statistics across the board. Um, it's really Barcelona's defending where there's a huge amount of variance in their performances. I mean, we're, we're talking 17, 18, first seven games, they were allowing. 0.29 goals per game so two goals conceded over over seven matches uh and then in 16 17 as well as 19 20 both years where they finished second 1.43 goals allowed per game uh which 10 goals in seven matches so and that pretty much gets you through september yeah so um those those drop points early on they're they take a toll uh, later in the season. Yeah, I think especially the fewer contenders you have in the league, the more fatal those drop points and those early goals conceded are to your your final spot on the table. Well, that correlates perfectly to uh, the 2014-15 season with Chelsea because they started coming out of the blocks at the start of the season were amazing going forward. They were scoring lots of goals, highest goals per night in the league, I remember from the charts. And then 
it massively declined. I think it declined more than any other team, which is bizarre because Chelsea won the league that season. When you look at the graph, the drop-off is just quite significant, but their defensive performance is quite strong throughout the campaign. It was such a typical Jose Mourinho side, and then they you know, they were picking up points, maybe one nils and things like that, but it still got them over the line. They won the title in the end. So it's it's interesting that you say that because you're, I suppose your goals per 90 can drop, in my mind anyway, once your defensive performance stays strong, once your goals allowed per 90 don't massively increase because obviously conceding goals is how you lose games. I know I'm sounding so... So like Michael Owen there, but I, I you know it's it, it's still a fair point. <laughs> there is some truth to the the saying yeah. that it's championships. Yeah, um, you know, granted, you you need the the attacking side of it too, and and again, yeah. it, I think if if you compare the the two charts, the teams that have the best combination of you know goals per mm-hmm. uh, goals per game and and goals conceded per game, they, you know, they typically win. Yeah, um, to me, it, it always seemed like there was a distinct top two in each of those metrics and and in points per game so you know it granted common sense point right there mm-hmm. um but you know if you want to be competitive if you want to i guess do just do the best you can to to help yourself climb up the table you know whether you're a relegation contender mid-table or, or contending for a, a title or top four the defense has to to come first you know those yeah. those performances can't have a drop uh you can't start slowly those points dropped early in the year they're not fatal necessarily but Mm -hmm. but they do cap your expectations yeah so the goals per game those can come yeah at least if you're you're kind of mid-table in in those charts early on but you're an elite defensive team you know top two top three in the league you'll be just fine Mm -hmm. you'll pick up uh, enough points to to keep yourself in the running for, for that title spot. Um, but if, if you can't keep the, the opponents from scoring, um, you know, below a goal per game, you're leaving a lot to chance. Yeah. So attack scoring goals is the hardest part of the game. You just don't take for granted that you're going to, to come away with each match, you know, even against, you know, a, a Southampton, um, a Fulham crystal Palace. You can't assume you're going to score two or three goals against them. Hmm. So be ready for a fight, Put you know, get your punches in, make sure that you can kind of dictate play when you're out of possession. Um, you're limiting opposition chances, but then on the flip side, you know, grow into your game and attack. You know, it's, I think that fluidity and attack, that's, that's really one of the more difficult things to establish, uh, in terms of team. It's so easy to disrupt a rhythm. So whether that's player injuries, um, just, I don't know, mental lapses from the players, um, there are so many different factors mm-hmm. that can impact the fluidity of your attacking tactics and the goals you're scoring. But that defensive discipline, that's got to be there from the start. If you don't have that, you're not going to punch above your weight. Mm-hmm. If you do, you've got a chance. So Adam, I mean, you and I were talking earlier about uh, just off air about the the Irish women's national team. Uh, aside from a couple of outliers against Morocco and Georgia, they score one goal a game. Yeah, they score, but they're undefeated in the past year. It's six wins, two draws. So I mean that that to me that's that's really the, the perfect view of how if you take care of the defensive side of the game, you're not going to lose. 
No, you, yeah. you might not win. You might pick up a couple of draws, but you're not going to lose. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look at Morocco with the World Cup was a primary example of that. They they set up to be very conservative during games, but they got to the semi-final, which is unbelievable. You know, they they nullified Spain and and Rodri. Rodri can cry all he wants and he can cry after the Scotland match because they don't play the nice football that he loves. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I said this last week too. I don't care. I'm, it's nonsense chat. But I'm, I'm, I don't I'm, have to stop hiding behind that. that that's yeah. just nonsense. It, you know, if there's no one way just, to play football. If someone picks a fight with you in the street and they're, they're bigger and stronger than you, you're going to fight dirty. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to be like, yeah, well, wanted a fair fight. Yeah. <laughs> you're break. Stop crying. Well, we're coming up to time, Scott. So I just, uh, but there's still just one or two more questions I want to ask. If apologies, my timekeeping is pretty poor. Oh, go um, for it. In terms of, I want to ask you a coaching question now. In terms of preseason, which is the, literally, so if a player misses preseason and the start of maybe the first two weeks or something of the Premier League, for instance, or just if if your team are playing a game and they a player misses the first week or two, the the international tournament is a direct result of them missing preseason because they're coming back late, meaning they get a later holiday. Do you see a massive decrease in performance if a player isn't available for the team's preseason when they come back maybe late, maybe a couple of weeks into the season they come back? Are they way off the pace? Does it depend on the player? There's a lot of instances like where a player has missed preseason and they're just horrendous, whereas, you know, some are okay to just click back to the way they were and it's like water of a duck's back to them to use the the old irish phrase yeah that's that is an interesting question yeah i think this this would tie into um an analysis of the same model but looking Mm -hmm. specifically at players um which you know that's uh that'll be a haul to uh to get (laughs) that article um but I don't know. I guess theorizing, I maybe say that players that become from um, a club or or have a coach with um, a more rigid mm-hmm. playing style, um, you know, just to say this is your role. Um, this is exactly what I want from you. Play within yourself. Play within your role. Um, it's probably less of an ad- adaptation period there, uh, and I think especially with those teams probably do tend to see um, players remaining with those clubs for longer periods of time. So it just, it takes a a long time to build that understanding. So, you know, once that understanding is built in, um, you understand how your teammates are going to play and specifically how you're going to play off of them. It's probably easier for you to jump right into the flow of things. Um, You know, maybe if you're, I don't know, maybe if you're uh, a top table team, but with, um, maybe, maybe more functional tactics, uh, or you're, I don't know, let's say you're mid table and you have five new teammates, you've got a brand new head coach. Um, all of those things will definitely take a toll. So, you know, I, you know, the, the tricky thing with this question is that we can, you know, by relating it to the international tournaments, we, we are looking at a very, very select group of people, mm-hmm. um, that's a fair point. That's a fair yeah, point. Yeah. So, and, you know, the, the benefit they have is that they're typically playing with elite company. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it would be interesting to maybe look, um, you know, not a, a Ronaldo, a Messi, a Benzema, it, not at those players, but, but maybe 
players who are, uh, you know, smaller players or, or, or smaller from smaller nations or role mm-hmm. players within bigger nations and then look at a correlation with their, their mid table clubs. So, you know, maybe, maybe this, um, you know, the, you mentioned Fulham earlier, maybe we take a look, <laughs> look at their players uh, and yeah. you know what they, the cost would be um, positively or negatively when they come back from the break. Mm-hmm. That, that is a really interesting topic. I definitely don't have the answers for it right now, but I, I don't know. My, I think my initial assumption would be top players can they can cope just because they're surrounded by talent, yeah. um, and maybe it's it's your you know players on your mid table teams that have to adjust to several new realities within their playing situation. You know, lack of preseason, new manager, new player arrivals. They're probably the ones who struggle the most out of the gates after that international tournament. And it really does come down to the lack of time with the team in preseason more so than the fact that they played at an international tournament. Yeah, and I suppose even speaking of that, when we mentioned earlier about the COVID season, the 2020-2021 season, no team had a preseason. And it, it showed because there was like, I mean, there was a stage where like Manchester United were 19th and Chelsea were down there and Southampton were forced and it was crazy. The league looked like it was you know, simulated on a, on a random generator on Google. It was bizarre. So it, yeah, it's, it's a fair point. And it was like, that was a case where no one had preseason. So it was like, everyone just messed up at once. And as I said, it corrected itself eventually. Uh, the, there was a question I wanted to ask you throughout the podcast, which I, which I left out because I feel like it would be a hard one to answer. I'm going to reference it here though. When you said about things like preseason, it's such a difficult topic because there's such a lack of, there's such a lack of, data available and you would I, I feel like you would need to be like in a high profile club where you're tracking their their kilometers you know per game and things like that so it's incredibly difficult to to suppose to talk about things like that like does it affect the player well 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 maybe we can look at things like goals per 90 and things like that but like again there could be a million different variables as to what factors as to why that's the case so a player comes back from a tournament and they're not doing well it might not be because of the tournament, it might be because they they have a new winger who doesn't pass to him because he's not good enough, or, or there's a new manager, or just a million different things. So it's so uh, it, you know. One of the things that stands out there is we can track almost everything now. You know, all of these top clubs they they have you know GPS trackers. Mm-hmm. They they can measure heart rate. Um, you know, just the the physical toll of a training session, a match. Everything's measured at this point. So. I would assume that they do have standards for you know, if players in this condition. This is how many minutes he can afford to play in the next game without putting himself at significant risk of injury. So I, I would assume from the physical standpoint, they have a pretty good idea of uh, where players are, how they can contribute, and you know, just kind of blending them in as the season progresses. Mm-hmm. To me, it it really is the the tactical side of it and. And maybe more more so the the relationship with their their teammates that has to come along a little more gradually. So you know, if if you're an international player, you had a, you're just finished the tournament, you can still do some exercising on your own. Um, just keep yourself in in decent shape so that way there's not such a huge uh, recovery that's needed once you get back with the team. Mm-hmm. But if you're not with the team, you don't have those those relationships on and off the pitch with your teammates 
you're not necessarily getting the well you're just not getting the level of training with your your manager that you would if you were with the squad so that's that's where you're going to kind of lose ground uh yeah. and and where you potentially have to make it up on the fly <laughs> the first couple of weeks before the season and then maybe even those first three or four rounds yeah and well to tie it all back in to the very start of the article itself that's probably where a lot of the the kind of the cliched punditry comes from, or if you want to call it lazy punditry, where people just say, oh, it must be because of the international tournament, when there's a million factors we can't even account for, that could be the reason for that. And as you said, you like you don't allude to anything in the piece, but it's just interesting that you say that there, because at the start you you reference those quotes, but it ties back in, pundits say that because they don't really know, which is kind of a stab in the dark and go, you know, two plus, two plus two equals five, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's like it doesn't necessarily correlate to a tournament and but you've presented the data for those who are listening to the podcast of course please go and, and read the, the the article it's a fantastic article the magazine is 5.99 per month or 59.99 for the year that's i mean I, I, and i promise you i i know i'm being biased but i say this i said this to everyone so far this is our best magazine in a long long time i'm really really proud of everyone for the stuff they put into the magazine it's absolutely phenomenal there is I mean, even like like from Scott's piece to Finton writing about a, an analysis of an old manager from the 80s and 90s right till now. And I mean, you, that's unbelievable work. I love that. It's absolutely phenomenal. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This is a really insightful chat. Where can people find you? Yeah. Hey, I've got the information this time. So on Twitter. <laughs> the last Coach time you Scott asked coffee. me what your Twitter was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So a little more coffee today. Got up a little early. I'm ready. I'm ready for the day. Rising grind. <laughs> <laughs> so at Twitter uh, or on Twitter at Coach Scott Copy, the website scottmartinmedia.com. So you get not too much content on the website right now, but um, I think more specifically, if you are um, you know, a high school or, or university aged player, um, some interesting data analysis on um, the college game here, where you know I coach for a, a Division three team called Pfeiffer University. So, um, but yeah, definitely some interesting data on recruitment trends or, uh, roster trends across the top two divisions. And then, um, yeah, just a few other articles, just kind of random thoughts. So nothing as rigorous as what you're going to find with my writings on TFA, but some nice casual information for you. And you can find Scott on LinkedIn too. Now he might not accept you, but you can find him there. <laughs> no, that's true. Just follow. <laughs> just follow <laughs> as long as you don't spam me more than likely to to accept scott thank you so much for coming on and to all the listeners at home i hope you enjoyed as well make sure to tune in on tuesday for another regular episode of the tfa scouted podcast with brian and i for you all to hopefully enjoy also make sure to rate the podcast too and share it with your followers friends and family as it really helps us to grow thank you all for listening and goodbye for now